Chapter Thirteen of Marriage, Volume One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Patty Cunningham. Marriage, Volume One, by Susan Edmonstone Ferrier. Chapter Thirteen, Part One. Never talk to me. I will weep, as you like it. Twice had the dinner bell been loudly sounded by old Donald, and the family of Glenfern were all assembled, yet their fashionable guests had not appeared. Impatient of delay, Miss Jackie hastened to ascertain the cause. Presently she returned in the utmost perturbation, and announced that Lady Juliana was in bed in a high fever, and Henry nowhere to be found. The whole eight rushed upstairs to ascertain the fact leaving the old gentleman much discomposed at this unseasonable delay. Some time elapsed ere they again returned, which they did with lengthened faces and an extreme perturbation. They had found their noble niece, according to Miss Jackie's report, in bed, according to Miss Grizzy's opinion, in a brain fever, as she no sooner perceived them enter then she covered her head with the bedclothes and continued screaming for them to be gone till they had actually quitted the apartment and what proves beyond a doubt that our sweet niece is not herself continued poor miss grizzy in a lamentable tone is that we appeared to her in every form but our own she sometimes took us for cats then thought we were ghosts haunting her and in short it is impossible to tell all the things she called us and she screams so for Harry to come and take her away that I am sure, I declare, I don't know what's come over her. Mrs. Douglas could scarce suppress a smile at the simplicity of the good spinsters. Her husband and she had gone out immediately after breakfast to pay a visit a few miles off, and did not return till near the dinner hour. They were therefore ignorant of all that had been acted during their absence. But as she suspected something was amiss, she requested the rest of the company would proceed to dinner, and leave her to ascertain the nature of Lady Juliana's disorder. "'Don't come near me!' shrieked her ladyship, on hearing the door open. "'Send Harry to take me away. I don't want anybody but Harry!' And a torrent of tears, sobs, and exclamations followed. "'My dear Juliana,' said Mrs. Douglas, softly approaching the bed, "'compose yourself, and if my present is disagreeable to you, I shall immediately withdraw.' "'Oh, is it you?' cried her sister-in-law, uncovering her face at the sound of her voice. "'I thought it had been these frightful old women come to torment me. "'And I shall die, I know I shall, if ever I look at them again. "'But I don't dislike you. "'So you may stay if you choose, though I don't want anybody but Harry to come and take me away.' A fresh fit of sobbing here impeded her utterance, and Mrs. Douglas, compassionating her distress, while she despised her folly, seated herself by the bedside, and taking her hand in the sweetest tone of complacency, attempted to soothe her into composure. "'The only way in which you can be less miserable,' said Mrs. Douglas, in a soothing tone, "'is to support your present situation with patience, which you may do by looking forward to brighter prospects. It is possible that your stay here may be short, and it is certain—' that it is in your own power to render your life more agreeable by endeavouring to accommodate yourself to the peculiarities of your husband's family. No doubt they are often tiresome and ridiculous, but they are always kind and well-meaning. 
You may say what you please, but I think them all odious creatures, and I won't live here with patience, and I shan't be agreeable to them, and all the talking in the world won't make me less miserable. If you were me, you would be just the same. But you have never been in London. That's the reason. Pardon me, replied her sister-in-law. I spent many years of my life there. You lived in London? repeated Lady Juliana in astonishment. And how, then, can you contrive to exist here? I not only contrive to exist, but to be extremely contented with existence, said Mrs. Douglas with a smile. Then, assuming a more serious air, I possess health, peace of mind, and the affections of a worthy husband, and I should be very undeserving of these blessings were I to give way to useless regrets or indulge in impious repinings, because my happiness might once have been more perfect, and still admits of improvement. I don't understand you, said Lady Juliana with a peevish yawn. Who did you live with in London? With my aunt, Lady Audley. With Lady Audley, repeated her sister-in-law in accents of astonishment. Why, I have heard of her. She lived quite in the world and gave balls and assemblies. So that's the reason you are not so disagreeable as the rest of them. Why did you not remain with her, or marry an Englishman? But I suppose, like me, you didn't know what Scotland was. Happy to have excited an interest, even through the medium of childish curiosity, in the bosom of her fashionable relative, Mrs. Douglas briefly related such circumstances of her past life as she judged proper to communicate. But as she sought rather to amuse than instruct by her simple narrative, we shall allow her to pursue her charitable intentions, while we do more justice to her character by introducing her regularly to the acquaintance of our readers. HISTORY OF MRS. DOUGLAS The selfish heart deserves the pang it feels. More generous sorrow, while it sinks, exalts, and conscious virtue mitigates the pang. YOUNG Mrs. Douglas was, on the maternal side, related to an English family. Her mother had died in giving birth to her, and her father, shortly after, falling in the service of his country, she had been consigned in infancy to the care of her aunt. Lady Audley had taken charge of her, on condition that she should never be claimed by her Scottish relations, for whom that lady entertained as much aversion as contempt. A latent feeling of affection for her departed sister, and a large portion of family pride, had prompted her wish of becoming the protectress of her orphan niece, and possessed of a high sense of rectitude and honor, she fulfilled the duty thus voluntarily imposed in a manner that secured the unshaken gratitude of the virtuous Alicia. Lady Audley was a character more esteemed and feared than loved, even by those with whom she was most intimate. Firm, upright, and rigid, she exacted from others those inflexible virtues which in herself she found no obstacle to performing. Neglecting these softer attractions, which shed their benign influence over the commerce of social life, she was content to enjoy the extorted esteem of her associates, for friends she had none. She sought in the world for objects to fill up the void which her heart could not supply. She loved eclat, and had succeeded in creating herself an existence of importance in the circles of high life, which she considered more as due to her consequence than essential to her enjoyment. She had early in life been left a widow, with the sole tutelage and management of an only son, 
whose large estate she regulated with the most admirable prudence and judgment. Alicia Malcolm was put under the care of her aunt at two years of age. A governess had been procured for her, whose character was such as not to impair the promising dispositions of her pupil. Alicia was gifted by nature with a warm, affectionate heart, and a calm imagination, attempered its influence. Her governess, a woman of a strong understanding and enlarged mind, early instilled into her a deep and strong sense of religion, and to it she owed the support which had safely guided her through the most trying vicissitudes. When at the age of seventeen Alicia Malcolm was produced in the world, she was a rational, cheerful, and sweet-tempered girl, with a finely formed person, and a countenance in which was so clearly painted the sunshine of her breast, that it attracted the bienveillance even of those who had not taste or judgment to define the charm. Her open natural manner, blending the frankness of the Scotch with the polished reserve of the Englishwoman, her total exemption from vanity, calculated alike to please others and maintain her own cheerfulness undimmed by a single cloud. Lady Audley felt for her niece a sentiment which she mistook for affection. Her self-approbation was gratified at the contemplation of a being who owed every advantage to her, and whom she had rescued from the coarseness and vulgarity which she deemed inseparable from the manners of every Scotchwoman. If Lady Audley really loved any human being, it was her son. In him were centred her dearest interests. On his aggrandizement and future importance hung her most sanguine hopes. She had acted contrary to the advice of her male relations, and followed her own judgment, by giving her son a private education. He was brought up under her own eye by a tutor of deep erudition, but who was totally unfitted for forming the mind, and compensating for those advantages which may be derived from a public education. The circumstances of his education, however, combined rather to stifle the exposure than to destroy the existence of some very dangerous qualities that seemed inherent in Sir Edmund's nature. He was ardent, impetuous, and passionate, though these propensities were cloaked by a reserve, partly natural, and partly arising from his mother and tutor. His was not the effervescence of character which bursts forth on every trivial occasion, but when any powerful cause awakened the slumbering inmates of his breast, they blazoned with an uncontrolled fury that defied all opposition, and overleapt all bounds of reason and decorum. Experience often shows us that minds formed of the most opposite attributes more forcibly attract each other than those which appear cast in the same mould. The source of this fascination is difficult to trace. It possesses not reason for its basis, yet is perhaps the most tyrannical in its influence from that very cause. The weakness of our natures occasionally makes us feel a potent charm in errors of a noble mind. Sir Edmund Audley and Alicia Malcolm proved examples of this observation. The affection of childhood had so gradually ripened into a warmer sentiment that neither was conscious of the nature of that sentiment till after it had attained strength to cast a material influence on their after-lives. The familiarity of near relatives associating constantly together produced a warm sentiment of affection, cemented by similarity of pursuits, and enlivened by diversity of character, while the perfect tranquillity of their lives afforded no event that could withdraw the veil of ignorance from their eyes. Could a woman of Lady Audley's discernment, it may be asked, 
place two young persons in such a situation and doubt the consequences? Those who are no longer young are liable to forget that love is a plant of early growth, and that the individuals that they have but a short time before beheld placing their supreme felicity on a rattle and a go-cart can so soon be actuated by the strongest passions of the human breast. Sir Edmund completed his nineteenth year, and Alicia entered her eighteenth, when this happy state of unconscious security was destroyed by a circumstance which rent the veil from her eyes, and disclosed his sentiments in all their energy and warmth. This circumstance was no other than a proposal of marriage to Alicia from a gentleman of large fortune and brilliant connections who resided in their neighborhood. His character was as little calculated as his appearance to engage the affections of a young woman of delicacy and good sense, but he was a man of consequence, heir to an earldom, member for the country, and Lady Audley, rejoicing at what she termed Alicia's good fortune, determined that she should become his wife. With mild firmness she rejected the honor intended her, but it was with difficulty that Lady Audley's mind could adopt or understand the idea of an opposition to her wishes. She could not seriously embrace the conviction that Alicia was determined to disobey her, and in order to bring her to a right understanding, she underwent a system of persecution that tended naturally to increase the antipathy her suitor had inspired. Lady Audley, with the indiscriminating zeal of prejudiced and overbearing persons, strove to recommend him to her niece by all those attributes which were of value in her own eyes, making allowance for a certain degree of indecision in her niece, but never admitting a doubt that in due time her will should be obeyed, as it had always hitherto been. At this juncture Sir Edmund came down to the country, and was struck by the altered looks and pensive manners of his once cheerful cousin. About a week after his arrival he found Alicia one morning in tears, after a long conversation with Lady Audley. Sir Edmund tenderly soothed her, and entreated to be made acquainted with the cause of her distress. She was so habituated to impart every thought to her cousin, the intimacy and sympathy of their souls were so entire, that she would not have concealed the late occurrence from him had she not been withheld by the natural timidity and delicacy a young woman feels in making her own conquests the subject of conversation. But now, so pathetically and irresistibly persuaded by Sir Edmund, and sensible that every distress of hers wounded his heart, Alicia candidly related to him the pursuit of her disagreeable suitor, and the importunities of Lady Audley in his favour. Every word she had spoken had more and more dispelled the mist that had so long hung over Sir Edmund's inclinations. At the first mention of a suitor, he had felt that to be hers was a happiness that comprised all others, and that the idea of losing her made the whole of existence appear a frightful blank. These feelings were no sooner known to himself than spontaneously poured into her delighted ears, while she felt that every sentiment met a kindred one in her breast. Alicia sought not a moment to disguise those feelings, which she now, for the first time, became aware of. They were known to the object of her innocent affection as soon as to herself, and both were convinced that, though not conscious before of the nature of their sentiments, love had long been mistaken for friendship in their hearts. But this state of blissful serenity did not last long. On the evening of the following day Lady Audley sent for her to her dressing-room. On entering, Alicia was panic-struck at her aunt's pale countenance, fiery eyes, and frame convulsed with passion. With difficulty Lady Audley, struggling for calmness, 
demanded an instant and decided reply to the proposals of Mr. Compton, the gentleman who had solicited her hand. Alicia entreated her aunt to waive the subject, as she found it impossible ever to consent to such a union. Scarcely was her answer uttered when Lady Audley's anger burst forth uncontrollably. She accused her niece of the vilest ingratitude in having seduced her son from the obedience he owed his mother, of having plotted to allay her base Scotch blood to the noble blood of the Audleys, and having exhausted every opprobrious epithet, she was forced to stop from want of breath to proceed. As Alicia listened to the cruel, unfounded reproaches of her aunt, her spirit rose under the unmerited ill-usage, but her conscience absolved her from all intention of injuring or deceiving a human being, and she calmly waited till Lady Audley's anger should have exhausted itself, and then entreated to know what part of her conduct had excited her aunt's displeasure. Lady Audley's reply was diffuse and intemperate. Alicia gathered from it that her rage had its source in a declaration her son had made to her of his affection for his cousin, and his resolution of marrying her as soon as he was of age, which open avowal of his sentiments had followed Lady Audley's injunctions to him to forward the suit of Mr. Compton. That her son, for whom she had in view one of the first matches in the kingdom, should dare to choose for himself, and above all to choose one whom she considered as much his inferior in birth as she was in fortune, was a circumstance quite insupportable to her feelings. Of the existence of love, Lady Audley had little conception, and she attributed her son's conduct to willful disobedience and obstinacy. In proportion, as she had hitherto found him complying and gentle, her wrath had kindled at his present firmness and inflexibility. So bitter were her reflections on his conduct, so severe her animadversions on the being he loved, that Sir Edmund, fired with resentment, expressed his resolution of acting according to the dictates of his own will, and expressed his contempt for her authority in terms the most unequivocal. Lady Audley, ignorant of the arts of persuasion, by every word she uttered more and more widened the breach her imperiousness had occasioned, until Sir Edmund, feeling himself no longer master of his temper, announced his intention of leaving the house, to allow his mother time to reconcile herself to the inevitable misfortune of beholding him the husband of Alicia Malcolm. He instantly ordered his horses and departed, leaving the following letter for his cousin. I have been compelled by motives of prudence, of which you are the sole object, to depart without seeing you. My absence became necessary from the unexpected conduct of Lady Audley, which has led me so near to forgetting that she was my mother, that I dare not remain and subject myself to excesses of temper which I might afterwards repent. Two years must elapse before I can become legally my own master, and should Lady Audley so far depart from the dictates of cool judgment as still to oppose what she knows to be inevitable, I fear that we cannot meet till then. My heart is well known to you, therefore I need not enlarge on the pain I feel at this unlooked-for separation." At the same time, I am cheered with the prospect of the unspeakable happiness that awaits me, the possession of your hand, and the confidence I feel in your constancy is in proportion to the certainty I experience in my own. I cannot, therefore, fear that any of the means which may be put in practice to disunite us will have more effect on you than on me. Looking forward to the moment that shall make you mine forever, I remain with steady confidence and unspeakable affection, 
your edmund audley with a trembling frame alicia handed the note to lady audley and begged leave to retire for a short time expressing her willingness to reply at another moment to any question her aunt might choose to put to her with regard to her engagement with sir edmund in the solitude of her own chamber alicia gave way to those feelings of wretchedness which she had with difficulty stifled in the presence of lady audley and bitterly wept over the extinction of her bright and newly formed visions of felicity to yield to unmerited ill-usage or to crouch beneath imperious and self-arrogated power was not in the nature of alicia and had lady audley been a stranger to her the path of duty would have been less intricate however much her own pride might have been wounded by entering into a family which considered her as an intruding beggar never would she have consented to sacrifice the virtuous inclinations of the man she loved to the will of an arrogant and imperious mother but alas the case was far different the recent ill-treatment she had experienced from lady audley could not efface from her noble mind the recollection of benefits conferred from the earliest period of her life and of unvarying attention to her welfare to her aunt she owed all but existence she had wholly supported her bestowed on her the most liberal education and from lady audley sprang every pleasure she had hitherto enjoyed had she been brought up by her paternal relations she would in all probability never have beheld her cousin and the mother and son might have lived in uninterrupted concord could she be the person to inflict on lady audley the severest disappointment she could experience the thought was too dreadful to bear and knowing that procrastination could but increase her misery no sooner had she felt convinced of the true nature of her duty than she made a steady resolution to perform and to adhere to it lady audley had vowed that while she had life in her she could never give her consent and approbation to her son's marriage and alicia was too well acquainted with her disposition to have the faintest expectation that she would relent but to remain any longer under her protection was impossible and she resolved to anticipate any proposal of that sort from her protectress End of chapter thirteen part one recording by patty cunningham